0: These two, 18 through 26. This is not me. I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun, because I must leave it to the one who comes after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is futile. There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? For to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This, too, is futile in a pursuit of the wind.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Alicia. Um, we're uh, we've been working on this series called "Living by Dying: The uh, The Paradox of Ecclesiastes," and um, and honestly, the word "paradox" is a great uh, is a great translation for one of the words that is is uh, thirty seven times throughout the entire book is just repeated over and over and over again. Does anybody know the Hebrew word that we've been walk, doing? Hevel. Hey, great. Hevel, hevel, hevel. everything is hevel, the teacher says. It's this vapor, 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 everything is coming up as a vapor to me. All of life is a vapor. Humanity is like a vapor. Work and, and all of these things, they're vapors to me. And what he means by that, as we've we've shared, is is, is a vapor is this illusory thing that we can see it. We know it's there. It's it's real. We can even, to a degree, touch it. But when we try to grab it, we try to hold it, we try to keep it for ourselves, it vanishes. And this, this man in here, the teacher, he's like, what's up with that? He's wrestling with that question. Why is all of life, this this confusing, this this vapor that is just sitting in front of me, tantalizing me, telling me it should matter. And when I grab it, it's gone. All of life is like. How do I rectify that? And, there's, and there's, there's truth and reality that is set here in the scripture. I, I, I recognize for, for the, uh, the believer in this, in this God that there is one who is to be feared and loved and followed. And yet, when I'm walking around the world, I'm seeing irregularities, peculiarities. How come the foolish people get the rewards? And how come the rich people are getting everything and the, the wise people are getting nothing? And how come everybody dies at the end? Why is that the case? I get why the foolish people should die, but how come the wise person is dying? I get that the poor person is dying, but why is the rich person dying? That's what the teacher is saying. Everybody is born the same way. Everybody dies the same way. And it seems like everything that I do during the time is not having some sort of real effect beyond the human limitations that i run into and i encounter on a on a daily basis so what do i do with that the book of ecclesiastes is all about this search for something tangible something permanent something eternal and he's he's making this point there are all of these roads that are sitting out in front of you forks and 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 directions and they're 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 calling you urging you to go right or to go left or to go over here and 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 all of those are saying I promise you if you walk down this road if you if you acquire wealth for yourself or you acquire more pleasures for yourself or you or you gain more influence and authority in the world your whole life will be Better, more meaningful, it will change. It will be worth, uh, it will be a life that is worth living. And yet he continues to encounter, the more I seem to be living, the more I am also dying. I still die. We asked the question last week, does he who has the most toys win? And the, the, the real answer is, no, he who has the most toys still dies, like the one who has no toys. They both die there's a paradox, an unanswerable question that he is desperately trying to uncover the the The, 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 the hard part too to, to rectify is that all of those things gifts and uh, wealth and, and 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 authority and influence and and um, and the good pleasures of, the good experiences of this life, art and humor and, and, um, and, and, and joy and affirmation and music and, and things like that, these are all good things. It's not like asking you to go and say, now, it's, it's not him, him uh, being tantalized with things that we know are not good things. He's like, no, they're all good things. All of these things are things you, you enjoy what I'm asking you to do, what, what, what he's being tempted with doing is to walk down roads that say this good gift that you enjoy, I would like you to take it and see if, if that road leads, if you just take that road all the way down, it leads to fulfillment and satisfaction in your life. And what he keeps doing is he keeps going down those roads and, and he reaches dead ends. And he has to turn around and walk back and try a different path until it reaches a dead end and he has to come back and try a different path. The story of Ecclesiastes is about this man who tries path after path after path. And at the end of all of it, spoiler alert, we're going to find that out at, uh, at the end, but, but he comes back to his original thought. I tried every single path. Every single path was a dead end. It's all paradox. It's an exercise in absurdity, a problem without any satisfying answer, at least from a human perspective. Some have talked about the book of Ecclesiastes as, um, uh, as the feeling of utter darkness in order to better realize the power of the light. And the idea here is that, that we can grow, and especially in the church and, and as those who spend all this time reading through the Bible and in Christian community and circles, we can grow very accustomed to grace. We can become like oh, almost too familiar with grace in our lives and, and the goodness of God. Uh, To the point where, like, we almost don't remember what it was like to not have grace. We're like, no, I'm just a graceful creature. I always have it. I'm always satisfied by the goodness of God. Who wouldn't be? And that's a great concept, but we also, but it also kind of, it kind of gently nudges us into this idea that, that, that we have become so accustomed to the good things of God that we never, we we almost live in a bubble of Christianity where we don't have, we don't experience things that are uncomfortable or or sad or hard, where where bad things never happen to good people and where the right thing is always said and done, and where wrath and punishment of God is not a thing. It's almost like we exist within this, this reality. And 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 then, and then here's the deal. We are so accustomed to light that we look out and we see people who are wandering in the dark with their arms pushed out, trying to feel their way through this life. And we want to go over to them and go, what is wrong with you? Why is it that you keep feeling around for the darkness? Why? It's light outside. What do you not understand? Our eternal sight grows accustomed to the light, and we can lose the gravity of who we are in Christ, how we have been changed and transformed, and how truly earth-shattering an act of grace, the death and resurrection of Jesus is, especially when all that we practice is sunshine and rainbow. Because all that we honestly need to do is just look up and see that there are many in this world who are walking around in the dark, doing everything they can just to survive. And it is hopeless and endless for them. Hoping just for a spark of light that will guide their way. Their eyes have grown accustomed to darkness. And so, in many ways, what the book of Ecclesiastes does is it is this momentary flipping off of the light switches. For those of us who have grown so accustomed to the light, we shut off the lights. And it blinds us with how dark it is. And as our eyes begin to grow accustomed to this sense of dark and almost despair, our eyes begin to take stock of how dark this truly is. And it allows us to then not only appreciate, but desire this light of the world that John says has invaded earth that darkness cannot comprehend. It is only in the utter darkness that light is most clearly seen and experienced. So, so that is really what we are doing. We're, we're flipping off the lights for just a little bit, allowing our eyes to grow accustomed with the reality of what life is like without grace and without mercy. When on my own, can I find that, that, that road that leads to my own satisfaction and safety and security and promise and and, and throughout this, 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 this retelling of this, this journey, we're finding these small sparks of light that, that raise our eyes up and, and help us to see going, some, God is pointing us out to something. There, It is dark, but I am seeing sparks that are kind of leading me towards the end. This morning we are going to hit on the third and final stop on the, the, the journey for life's meaning. And so we've looked at meaning and how, we, um, how we, 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 we feel the things that we would feel in pleasures and that which we would possess, the things that we can have. And, and now we're going to look at that which we do. Because one of the primary ways in which humanity seeks to find its place in life to make our existence matter is through power. Now, what do I mean by power? And this idea is woven through uh, really the whole story of Ecclesiastes, but, but power, by definition, is, is three things. It is authority, influence, and achievement or accomplishment. Authority, influence, and accomplishment. So authority, a measure of uh, uh, where, uh, or like a sphere of domain where you set the rules and you set the boundaries and the parameters of your context. The authority is the place uh, where I rule. I, my kids say, why can I do this? Why can't I go to my friend's house? Because you live in my house and I make the rules. I'm the authority. And they question that and I go, I'm sorry. I, sometimes I have good answers for them and sometimes it's I make the rules and I tell you, you can't. I'm in charge, right? It's my sphere of domain, okay? I set the parameters and the boundaries for a healthy and, healthy and blessed life and also for cursed life. If you, if you choose to go the opposite way, you're gonna receive a curse, i.e. punishment, i.e. you go to your room and no life happens for you. So authority, that's power. That's a power that we have and it affects change. The authority that you have can affect change. The other one is influence, and influence is where you are the source of knowledge and understanding, all right? So you can be powerful by influence when your voice is heard, when your opinions matter, when, when the things that you say, people listen and respond and change because they know that what you're speaking is either true or powerful or effectual or inspiring. Influence is power. And then the last one is achievement. It's that a capacity to accomplish something, whether small or great for a specific purpose. Something needs to be done to create change. I will just do it. I don't tell people what to do. I don't inspire them, but I just make it happen. Change happens, right? Accomplishment—that's a power. And when I look at power, it is this idea that something is needs to be changed, and within my capacity, I will change it. That's power. And the hope for meaning through power is a very enticing thing to us. Uh, I would say even more than pleasure and possessions, power promises more expects more, and, and can even have this ability to unite large groups of people to join its cause. 75 years ago, uh, a man named George Orwell, who is an author who wrote uh, Animal Farm and, and in uh, 1984. Animal Farm was one of my favorite books growing up as a kid. Um, uh, George Orwell wrote this review of, of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Uh, and, and if you're not familiar with Mein Kampf, uh, this is the dictator Adolf Hitler who who called for worldwide domination and, and brutal Nazism. This is his treatise explaining why this sort of, this sort of horrible thing should, should be enacted and take place. Orwell wrote that Hitler envisioned this horrible, brainless empire in which basically nothing ever happens Except for the training of young men for war and the endless breeding of fresh cannon fodder. And Orwell asks this question in his review of the, of the book. And he says, How was it that he was able to put this monstrous vision across? And then Orwell has this realization. He says, Sometimes I think we have this human fallacy that people just want to avoid pain and pursue uh, ease and security. And he said, that's actually not true at all. He says, Hitler understands that humans don't just want comfort, safety, short working hours, hygiene, birth control, and in general, common sense. They also intermittently want struggle and self Sacrifice, not to mention drums, flags, and loyalty parades. Why is it that Hitler was so successful at uniting a nation, even with a vision as, 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 as horrifying as his? Why was the prospect of suffering and sacrifice so appealing to the people of Germany? And the answer is that people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. To know that their work and toil brought about change. All of us recognize there are things in our society and in our, our circles that, that are broken or imperfect in some way or another. And, and it has been built into us as part of our DNA to want those things to be changed. Power is that capacity to do something and have the influence to be an agent of change. And that is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a gift. It is uniquely tied to this prospect of hope that somehow, in some way, we can change the present circumstances and bring about life as it was always intended to be. And we believe that because we have seen it happen. If we're honest, we have seen the effects of power in good ways in our world. We have also seen it abused and misused and create chaos and destruction and death. Our world is full of these historic and life-altering moments. It is a good, power can be this good gift of God. And so the teacher is going to look at this and and he's going to evaluate this and he's going to say, Two things. First, God has, has, has put eternity into man's heart. We see things in light of forever. We recognize that the events and, and actions uh, of, of the things that we do now have effects both now and at a future time. He recognizes that. He said, "There is we have a, a, a sight that, that points us beyond ourselves." But then he also laments the fact that this world is frustrating and irreparably broken. That in place of justice, he is finding instead wickedness and in place of right living, more wickedness. And so the cynic of the teacher comes out when he suggests that we should not be surprised when we encounter the oppression of the impoverished and the marginalized of society. He says... Everywhere under the sun there is injustice and pain and suffering and there is no one to help. And every day there is a new crisis, an abuse of government, an act of leverage over the misfortunate by those who have all the influence. And we know this too because it is no secret that change is needed in this world and we humans ought to have the power to make it. And beyond that, there is also a desire within us because, because power is, is, is something that enables us in a, in a weird, strange way to live on long after we have died. Power is a human's chance at immortality, the opportunity to be truly valued or even reviled by what he has accomplished, to be celebrated or hated for change. And to finally matter. Nobody likes what Hitler did. Everybody remembers his name. So, the teacher is going to come to this point. And he's saying, okay, so if ever there was something, no, not on pleasure, not a possessions, but, but power... Maybe this is the thing under the sun that could provide me a meaningful existence. The work as the measure of my worth. So what do we find? What do we discover? The teacher is going to make three observations in our passage this morning from from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles... I'd encourage you to open them, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes, which is perhaps the weirdest name in the the Bible. All of the names are actually weird if if you're like, I don't speak Greek. So you're looking at all these names going, why do we actually name everything in Greek? I don't know. We just do. But actually, like some of the names, so like Samuel, that's Hebrew. Kings, that's obviously English. Numbers, that's English. I like, I don't, Lamentations, that's English. I'm sorry, I just, that was a total tangent. (laughs) Go to the the book with the Greek name Ecclesiastes. That's after Proverbs and before Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. Uh, You're welcome to grab. We're also going to put it up on the screen here, though, so you can follow along. All right. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This, too, is hevel. Futile. So, now, going back, let's, let's think about this, this teacher, right? This, this man who's only called, the, referred to as the teacher throughout our, our Bibles, Kohelet, or Ecclesiastes would be his Greek name, right? Um, and, and who is this teacher? The only clue that we're given is at the very beginning, and it says, he's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So historically... There were three kings who ruled over the united Israel, right? Saul, Saul, David, Solomon, his son. Uh, Saul ruled in Gebeah, not in Jerusalem, so we can count him out. He's got to be the son of David. So I'll give you one guess which king we're talking about here. Now, whether Solomon actually wrote this or said this and it was recorded later, that's beside the point. When you hear his voice, the teacher, you are tuning your ears to hear the greatest king Israel has ever known. To Israel, if you are an Israelite, Eons later, in all of Israel's history, no man lived a greater, more successful, more satisfying life than King Solomon. No king was wiser, wealthier, or more productive in expanding the kingdom of Israel than Solomon. So you can look back in 1 Kings if you want to learn a little more about that story. But, but here's, the, here's the thing. When Solomon dies... His son, Rehoboam, takes over and inherits the nation of Israel. And so he's got this amazing opportunity to build on this foundation that his father set before him. Solomon gave him like the greatest head start any king could ever hope to offer. And so what does he do with it? Oh man, he screws it up big time. Oh, so bad. So bad. Like, right at the beginning, he starts making all of these, like, foolish and selfish decisions. He's acting totally entitled. He takes advantage of the people. They come to him saying, we're hungry. What do we do? And he says, oh, I'll give you scorpions. Like, I'll I'll start beating you. How about that? And then you won't be hungry anymore. Like, you, you look at this man going, wow. You were given the gift of legacy and power and authority and influence. And you totally screwed it up. I was reading a, I was actually reading a book called "The Paradox of uh, the Power Paradox," and it's written by this uh, this evolutionary psychologist. And so it's it's he's not going from scripture, but he points out this fact and he says, "Power is this thing, this influence and authority that that gives us almost this this dopamine high that we need, that helps us feel good and better. It gives us, inspires us, in all of this." And he says this though he says. It also lends us like, it also is the fastest surefire path to, being a, to becoming a sociopath. Like, that's also, the more power you have, the more sociopath you become this is also the, the paradox. He's saying it's great. It also, you, it also will destroy you. Like, you'll also become a shell of a human being if you do. And so I was fascinated reading this story because I'm like, I'm reading this guy going, he's read Ecclesiastes, I'm pretty sure. Maybe not, but he should. Right after Rehoboam's reign, in fact, during Rehoboam's reign, he, he, he takes this amazing, beautiful, prosperous king of Israel, kingdom, and he splits it in half immediately. Civil war breaks out. He loses half the kingdom. He is, despite, he is not a good king in the, in, in the thing. And, and, and the, the moral of that story is that all of the work of Solomon Everything that he did to accumulate and offer uh, prosperity and growth and wealth and happiness in the country uh, in the kingdom of Israel was gone the second he died. He lost all of it. It had no lasting effects on the on the nation of Israel. Tyler is an, uh stevenson he's an, an, an environmental activist who pushes for nuclear disarmament. And he's also a strong Christian, by the way. Uh, and he makes this point. He says, impact is value neutral. It's a concept based on degree of influence rather than quality. If I make an impact on something, all I've done is hit it really hard with no guarantee that it's better for the collision. The teacher will ultimately say in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, he says, no one has authority over the wind to restrain it, and there is no authority over the day of death. Part of our struggle is that we in craving the the power that comes with that authority is that it, it becomes easy to think we can do it better than those who have come before us. I mean, what is the gist of every single political election ever? The person before me was bad. All of the other candidates are bad. I'm good. They don't have a plan to fix all the problems. This guy started all the problems. These guys can't fix the problems, I can fix the problems, so bring me into power so I can fix the problems. That's and I don't care what candidate you, you side with, they're all gonna say the same thing. It's tempting then to look at those candidates and dismiss them as power hungry or delusional, but the reality, the reason why they say that is because if we're honest with ourselves. We believe much the same about us. If only people would listen to me. Like if only they would trust what I'm trying to tell them. We could do something great. No one's listening to me. Like I have the plan. Nobody listens to my plan. We put hope in our own abilities, but it's difficult to trust others with the same thing ourselves. Holding on tight to power and control and authority are a result of our distrust in anyone else to do what we are seeking to do. No one else, we say, has the same values and precise plan to accomplish change. So I cannot give freely to anyone else because I don't want them to mess it up and undo the work that I have done. Now, is that what meaning is all about? is meaning about preserving our authority and our our idealistic immortality so that everyone remembers that we were the right ones all along. Is that really what it's about? What does the teacher say in chapter one? A generation goes, a generation comes, and there is nothing new under the sun. I remember um, when I was uh, a, a much younger pastor and you're like much younger but to me it was much younger as 12 years ago um uh i i i was i walked up to the senior leader and i i i i brought him this like great new idea that we had i was like i i've got it i fixed all of our problems i'm 22 years old at the time I fixed all of our problems if we just do this one thing. Like, if we'll put in the work, it'll be this major change. But man, our our church will have this significant impact. Like, it will change everything. All of it. All of it will just be just amazing if we do this one thing. Uh, and so, uh, because of my my youth and romantic idealism, I fully expected the pastor to respond with some sort of like. Uh, eye roll, and heavy sigh, and, um, and, and something about how young people are just really headstrong and impetuous, and, and, and kind of dismiss me, in which case I could hold on to my idea and go, Shh, "If you only knew, like, if you would just listen to me, all my ideas, and we'd all be better for it. He didn't say that. He said, like, he, he just thought for a second, and then he calmly responded, he said, you know, I tried the same thing two years ago. It didn't work. And, and here's why. And so I listened to him, and I realized something, that what I was trying to do is I was trying to raise the foundation of the man who had gone before me, who had experienced trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing and finally trying and, and succeeding at something. And, and so I ultimately just forgot about my great new idea because I realized that it, it wasn't that new um, and it wasn't that great. Um, and I tell you this because I'm not, trying to, I'm not telling you that to boast about how wise I am or how wise the pastor was even though he's certainly a wise man. Um, I, I tell you this because I want you to see how incredibly easy it is for us to dismiss a legacy because a generation goes and a generation comes. Power does not equal legacy. So next, power does not equal happiness. Verse 20. So... I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is hevel, futile, and a great wrong. So wait. The, the teacher, you can see, he's starting to get really frustrated by this point, right? He's getting super frustrated at this point. He's been working and toiling, and he's in despair over the futility of power. There's almost like a like this hopelessness in his work and his achievements because he knows at some point the seasons are going to change, and life will turn over to death, and, and all of his progress will just be wiped away from the face of the earth in an instant he says that is that's not only evil but that's that's raw that's the the word wrong here is evil that's an evil thing it's not just frustrating it's it's just plain out evil so all right i get it there's there's an evil side to this this whole power thing to authority and influence and achievement. But, but, but let's, let's play the other side of the coin. I mean, doesn't it feel good to have power and influence and achievement and accomplishment? To do something, to, to make something happen? Like, if you are building something and you finish it, should you not feel a sense of pride and accomplishment that you did something good? That you steered someone in the right direction towards a good idea instead of a bad idea? That your influence made a difference? Like that should, that should please us, right? We shouldn't feel like it's evil or, or futile in any way. Like That shouldn't bring us to despair or discouragement. Um, a, a few years ago, I was, I was working uh, for a, uh, a graduate school and I oversaw about 120 students at any time, and I would just help them uh, with problems and advise degree programs, and I was a support person to them. And, um, and I loved doing that. Like, I felt like I was making a real sincere difference in, in these people's lives, in the future, and, and because it's a Christian grad school, for the, the, fut- like the kingdom of God. I was making, in- like, God's kingdom was getting worked out, and I had a part to play in you know? all Uh, And eventually, I moved up and I started overseeing two campuses and over 300 students. And so, uh, I was achieving more and influencing more and accomplishing more. And so, my ideas and my strategies and my suggestions, um, like they started changing culture and attitudes and even some of the overall direction at the school. And and that was was neat to be a part of, I, I have to admit. I enjoyed, I found gratitude and some satisfaction and how I was getting used to to do those things. So where does despair come in in that way? How is it that the the feelings of fulfillment fade into frustration and futility? The hevel of power, the, the vapor, the paradox of power, arises when you seek to find happiness solely and completely in your work. Not merely in the effects, but in the work itself. So in my case, I, I felt like at one point I had risen to what they call the highest level of incompetency. Have you ever heard of that? I rose to the highest level of incompetency. I absolutely did. I, I reached a point where I was, I was drowning every single day. Every day. I could never get it all done. I could never catch up. I was making more and more mistakes all the time because I had a bigger load than I could handle. I couldn't make the changes I needed to make. I was, I was bumping up very quickly against the limits of my own ability to do this job. And it was frustrating as all get out. Um, I went from getting 10 to 20 emails a day to 100 emails a day. Uh, I had two phones. I had one phone on one campus and another phone 120 miles away, and both voicemails were full because I could not catch up with them all. I could not clear them out. I was driving 300 miles a week, and I was sleeping in hotels if I actually got sleep, and then the anxiety would creep in and the mistakes, and I was not longer happy in a job that I was originally very happy in. All of the influence, all of the impact, suddenly wasn't worth the sacrifice that I was making. Now, here's the thing. I've, I, I, I've, I've actually kept in touch with my successors at the school, like the, 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 the people who had my job after me. And, <clears throat> and, and the thing is, they're taking the students in directions that I would have never even thought about. They're giving them all kinds of new, better opportunities that I hadn't even considered at the time. And I'm not saying I was bad at my job, but what I'm saying is there is nothing new under the sun. so all of the work that I was doing and, and talking about how fulfilling that is to be doing this original creative thing, making the change that happens, the reality was it wasn't all that creative from anything that had ever been done before in the past ever. And not only that, but the work that I had done, as, as grateful for the season it was, there were seasons of even better, more improvement that happened after me because, in fact, as I left the job, better, more particular people who knew how to do that like, had better ideas and had better capacities and were able to fulfill that job better. And so I, I, what I looked at was, I was not the end-all, be-all, the ultimate version of student success for these people. So to realize the despair that I count, encountered in that work, the, the pressure I put on myself to succeed, when in the end, as much as I thought I mattered, didn't matter actually all that much. And And... And I I tell you this because I'm inviting you into my own mind of, 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 of trying to work this out. And isn't that what the teacher does? He's inviting us into his own mind as he tries to work out this understanding of life and fulfillment and satisfaction. I really enjoyed that job. If I'd never had to do that work again, though, man, all too happy. I'm, I'm almost I'm struck by the futility of my efforts in this weird way because, because in, a, in the long run, did it offer me eternal bliss and satisfaction? No. Did it provide me the basis for my hope and security? No, there's a certain heaviness about it. Like I was happy with one hand, but then when I grabbed two hands of it, it was too much. the pursuit of power, the pursuit of that identity that comes with achievement and authority and influence is very easily shaken. It's very easily lost, and with it goes self-confidence and security and even joy. And so for this reason, power does not equal happiness. So what about rest? Can power equal rest? verse 22 for what does a man what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun for all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful even at night his mind does not rest this too is hevel futile so have you ever like he, the teacher going like hey here's another hevel idea The result of all my efforts of labor during this life that I get? Grief and sorrow. My mind is running 24-7. It is constantly pushing for the next best thing, and it never ends. The road never comes to a head. The horizon never gets closer. Power is this restless road. Have you ever thought, like, if I could just blank, everything would change? ever thought about that? If I could just do this, everything would change. If I could just get that college degree, if I could just get married, if I could just get that career, if I could just do that one thing that I've always wanted to do, to make that difference, things would be different. I could finally rest Satisfied knowing that I have my bucket list has been crossed out. We long for that one achievement that will validate our existence, that will make everyone around us appreciate us as meaningful human beings. There's just this one problem we have limits, we are not strong enough, we are not smart enough. There's not enough time. Other people don't cooperate, etc. Sooner or later, no matter how capable you think you are, you will eventually hit that wall. Something will happen that will make you realize that, as a human being, you are limited. So we get tired, as the teacher says. We can get overwhelmed by busyness. And this even happens at the church. Churches can get overwhelmed by busyness. You, you, you may notice that our bulletins are not filled up with events and classes and meetings and, and something for the young and the old and the male and the female and the married and the single and the theologian and the social liberator. Like, we don't have all, like, we don't have something for everyone. Now, if you are a theologian, I am too, and so I, we can always do that. But we don't list it in the bulletin of saying, here, here's a special time for theologians to come gather. Okay? Um, we don't have something for everyone here. And, and there's, there's three reasons for that. One, we're, we're too small to have something for everyone. We can't just have something for everyone because there's not enough of us to have something for everyone. Right? That's one. Two, we have, um, we have committed to being a simple church. We gather in small communities and mentoring relationships, and we allow for God to work out uh, through these grace-filled moments his, his plans for us and for spiritual maturity and life in Christ. So our, 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 our plan, our, 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 our value is to keep things simple, to not overcomplicate the process of spiritual growth and maturity. Now here's the reason number three. The other reason is what David Gibson refers to as the bottomless pit of good and godly gospel tasks to be accomplished. There's always more to do and perennial guilt to live with when it's not being done. And some of it is chasing after the wind because we try to gain things in ministry that we were never called to receive. Gibson goes on and he says, We usually think life tomorrow is going to be better than life today because tomorrow we'll have achieved something new. Tomorrow we'll spend more time with the Bible. We'll finally tidy the house. Tomorrow we'll complete the dream move, the promotion, the degree, a marriage, the deadline. The teacher's point is that to live this way is like shooting yourself in one foot so that you can hop more quickly on the other. We do this all the time. Why not stop and enjoy today in very real ways? Power is that ability to achieve and to attain authority and influence, but it does not equal rest. Having a goal is fine. Building an identity is is okay to a degree, but but once those things become the end all, be all, it becomes a tireless pursuit. You will live or die by that identification. If you you are saying, I am the ultra mom, if you live your life by being the ultra mom, you, you will forever be bound by that identity you will always have to push and push and push to be the ultra mom, the mom that is more ultra than any other mom. And as any mom knows, kids are great at destroying that persona. Our house can be clean, and 30 seconds later, it is an utter disaster, and we go, we cannot invite anybody over here, but we just got it cleaned, I promise you. Um, to, have the, to, uh, to say, I am the person with all the answers, you'll forever have to have the answers, right? To be the person of greatest influence, you have to fight daily to maintain that influence and power and authority to the point where you will even abuse the power and authority you have to keep and build and accumulate more and more authority. There's a reason why the most powerful people are the most prone to becoming sociopaths is because power is something that corrupts the more and more you accumulate it to identify yourself with that. At some point, you and I will come face to face with our limitations as human beings. All of us have experienced the frustration of our own individual limits. And so the question becomes... How much stock have you put into your hopes and your dreams for authority and influence and achievement? What is it that you are willing to lose for your goal and for what purpose? Can it really guarantee ultimate fulfillment and purpose in your own power and strength? Will it be worth it in the end? Power does not equal rest the teacher has 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 walked down this road and he is he is reaching this dead end and, and 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 as he reaches the dead end it's almost like he looks up and he sees just beyond the road and this spark of light awakens within him somehow and he says verse 24 there is nothing better for a person than to eat drink and enjoy his work i have seen that even this is hevel no not hevel it is from god's hand because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him For to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. He gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This, too, is Hevel and is a pursuit of the wind. There is this tension that continues to pull and and stretch at him. And, And despite every effort to seek and to attain meaning on his own, by his own strength and labor and toil, he continues to be frustrated. And yet at the same time, he sees that those who do find enjoyment in their toil... Do not take that for themselves. They are given that enjoyment by God, that there is pleasure and fulfillment that can be found in your work if you are not the giver, if someone else is the giver. Look at this distinction that gets made in that passage between, between the, uh, the one who pleases God and the sinner. We see that those who please God are, are given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That those who are somehow already fulfilled and happy are given more power. But those who do not please God, who pursue power and gain for their own agenda, their own priorities, their own legacy, they find what? Frustration and hell at the end. To them and ultimately to the teacher as he goes through, their fruit is not fulfillment but futility. The difference between the righteous person, the one who pleases God, and the the sinner is not mere morality. It is not more perfection. The one who pleases God is not simply more perfect than the one who does not please God. The difference between the righteous person and the sinner is not perfection. It is not morality. It is humility. It is humility. There's a tendency to think that my righteousness is on account of who? Me. My righteousness is because of me. Me. My works, my speech, my character, my contributions, my positive attitude. It's me. God loves me because of me. He's pleased with me because of me. Now, hold on. Doesn't that sound a lot, though, like accumulating and gathering? A tireless, endless task? Doesn't that sound like a tireless, endless task? To constantly have to work for your being pleased, for your righteousness? To toil at and labor at so that God will be happy with you, only so that at the end of the day you can claim that the one who God is pleased with is you because of who? Because of you. Is that really all we're doing? Humility will say instead, this is not my work. This is God's gift. The work that I have been given is not for any purpose that I want to gather and accumulate for me. The work that I have been given is because God has given me gifts that I'll continue to use and steward and enjoy and I will cultivate But in the end, it is nothing that I can take with me. It is nothing that I need to stress out about. Uh, A wise friend recently gave me this advice regarding my work at the church. And he said, at the end of every day, and I, I do this, I practice this every day. At the end of every day, you get in your car. You give thanks to God for his church, for what he is doing in the church, for how he is moving and growing, for your opportunity to play a part in it for this time. And then you hand it over to him and you say, God, this is your church. You're going to do with it what you will. I'm going to go home and I'm going to enjoy my family. I'll see you later. And I leave the, the, the church to God because it's his church to do what he wants. Do I need to bring it home and tirelessly 24-7 think and strategize and work and, and, and process and try to reason? How do I do this better? How do I, how do I this person's happy with this and then the same, another person is unhappy for the same reason why this person's happy. How do I, there's a paradox with you all. Now, I'm not saying it's you. But I'm saying ministry in general tends to lend us to these sort of situations where, 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 where it is, it is a, there is no perfect way where everybody's like, yeah, we're all happy with this choice. So what I do, changed my life, by the way. At the end of my, my time, I hand it off to God and I say, God, if you need me, I'm on call. Okay, uh, but this is your church. You're going to do with it what you want. I'm going to go home. My great, my a higher priority is loving my kids, playing with them, serving my wife, meeting her needs, taking care of them. My righteousness is not found in the success of this institution. It is not found in the number of people in the seats or the bottom line of the budget. It is found in my willingness to accept the gift God has given me in this community. It is found when I recognize that I did not earn what I have. It has been given to me. Do I commit myself inward to gathering and accumulating, to to preserving my legacy or my happiness or my satisfaction? Do I keep searching out the path for myself or do I just trust the giver? Even if that means I don't know exactly where the path will lead. Can I simply just follow him wherever he goes? In in the gospel, the good news, the the thing that, that so captivates us in this community, we see Jesus Christ who came in in utter, total power, but was never corrupted. A man who who used his power to serve and to sacrifice and to save. In Jesus, we finally see what our hearts have been longing for. We see a power that is controlled by love. It does not discriminate, but it handles each of us with mercy. Mercy. Jesus never advocated a mad scramble to the top of the power ladder. Instead, what does he talk about? Taking the least important seat of the banquet table. Being a servant to all, washing feet, accepting friendship of people who who we would otherwise wince at. why is that so powerful It's powerful because once we realize what Jesus has done for it for us we don't need the false badges of importance and power we don't need the approval of other people because all we need is found in the love of God and so authority and influence and, and achievement are not ours to hoard because Jesus is the only authority we ever need. Jesus is the only name that we want to be known. Jesus has done all that we could ever do. When we are pushed up against the human limits of power, Jesus shows us what that gift is meant for. And in doing so, we are not only invited, but we are compelled to actually hand that over to him. Hand over that authority. Hand over your influence. Hand over your accomplishments to Jesus. It's his works. It's his power. It's his authority that we dwell in and live in. And we trust that that gift will be used rightly in his hands. As we pray, I want—I just want to ask—I um, want to ask you this question: Where are the areas of of power and influence and authority that you are holding on to that you're like, man? If only I could, then it would be better. I would have rest, power, authority. Where are those areas that you keep bumping up to and finding frustration? where you are driving yourself insane over and over again, trying to beat your head against the wall to make something different, and all you recognize is that the impact that you're making is just hitting the wall really, really hard with no degree of understanding how it will go? Are you trying to leave behind a legacy? Are you trying to to find your immortality, your permanence in this world in a different way? The way that that seeks for the self, the way that that aims inward and points inward and tries to to solve the problem for yourself, it it is an unsolvable problem from our standpoint. I would ask you to take that to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I am I am. Uh, confounded sometimes by the ways in which you lead us down roads and almost invite us to explore this, this, this hope, this possibility. And then, and then as we come to it and as we, we experience the same darkness and our eyes become acclimated to the despair and the hope, you bring hope and light and, and, and promise in you. So well, I ask that today we would enjoy the work you have given us. That we see it as a gift. As long as you give us that gift, would we use it, steward it well, enjoy the fruit because it is you who are working through us. Jesus, may we put our hope in you and knowing that nothing that we can do will ensure our, our, our value and meaning and purpose apart from you that you are the giver of all good things, that it is because of you that we live, that we find grace, that we find forgiveness, that we experience love and peace and joy. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.
0: I dare not trust the sweet